0: Have you been seeing these Pipeline stories? Because it wouldn't shock me to hear that you hadn't. I'm a little taken aback. Once again, hello and welcome to the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pokabilly. where increasingly I seem to be tracking these stories that I think are just kind of huge, which, frankly, I don't even see them on CNBC. I'm putting Pipeline and CNBC, those two words, into Google News. And I get like two or three week old stories, Nord Stream 1 shut off. But this SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit that happened last week, I mean, they basically announced the Power of Siberia 2 pipeline. This is courtesy of Asia Times. Again, like, I have to do these kind of weird searches here. Credit to them. And according to Jeff Powell of the Asia Times... Chinese President Xi Jinping, Russia President Vladimir Putin, and Mongolian President Ukna Kurelesuk held a face-to-face meeting in Samarkand on the sideline of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit. The three leaders agreed to actively move forward on the Mongolian section of the China-Russia natural gas pipeline known as Power of Siberia 2. Now, according to Russia Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak, when he was asked by reporters, if the power of Siberia 2 pipeline aims to replace Nord Stream 2 within Russia's energy strategy, Novak said yes. So, you know, and again, you do a search on put CNBC and and pipeline into Google News, and I didn't find a single story on this. Do it with Bloomberg too. So again, maybe this is a CNBC pro. Maybe this is Bloomberg terminal stuff that you have to subscribe to. But frankly, I think the public should be aware of this. And I, again, I'm just kind of mystified here. We have these other pipelines that are being built in Africa too. And again, these seem like crucial, this West Africa pipeline going from Nigeria to Morocco, which, you know, you look at the graphic and, oh, it goes to Spain as well. And then there's been all that talk between uh, Spain and Germany, if we can put a pipeline through to Germany. So you start to see the strategy, but I just wonder to myself, as someone who consumes a fair amount of financial news, why am I have to put in pipeline into Google to find out like these massive stories? The world is facing a cost-of-living crisis. Why? Because of an energy crisis. And here, pipelines are being built, and, you know, Big deals are happening, supposedly, and they're kind of just ignored. But let's find out what Elon Musk has to say about, you know, batteries in 2030. So I guess that's why we're here. We have a purpose here at the Northern Miner Podcast to help inform you of what's actually going on in this world that matters. So hello and welcome again. just on this pipeline issue, before we move on, We have a very exciting show, by the way, with Rohan Reddy from Global X ETFs. He's the director of research there. So he gives us just comprehensive answers on energy, industrial metals, and precious metals. And he never said bullish, but I'd call him surprisingly bullish. He called it late cycle where we are. And we'll come back to this pipeline in a second, this other pipeline. Uh, He calls it late cycle. And basically, he's a buy the dip on copper and silver. And that's short-term and long-term, very bullish on uranium and lithium. And he gives all his reasons why. So a really great interview, as always, with Rohan Reddy coming up as our feature content. Now, back to this other pipeline, because let me just bring this up, because there is a Uganda-Tanzania pipeline. So this goes to the east of Africa, into the Indian Ocean, and now... The European Parliament is condemning it, putting pressure on banks to abandon the project. Like, I wonder if they're doing the same thing with this Western Africa pipeline. Like, they may be, but I just see here I mean, this is Yale Environment. As I do my search through pipelines, (laughs) Google News, Yale School of the Environment is saying European Parliament condemns East Africa pipeline, putting pressure on banks to abandon project. And it says here numerous banks and insurers have declined to back it. This is by no author put here. So I guess just staff story. The pipeline, spearheaded by French oil giant Total, would carry oil harvested from Uganda 900 miles to the port of Tanga in Tanzania. Now, the EU resolution calls for, quote, Ugandan and Tanzanian authorities, as well as the project promoters and stakeholders, to protect the environment and to put an end to the extractive activities in protected and sensitive ecosystems, including the shores of Lake Albert. The resolution also, quote, urges Total Energies to take one year before launching the project to study the feasibility of an alternative route. I mean, that seems to be the M.O. I mean, going back to Stephen Stewart last week, obfuscate, delay, and distract. And look, I'm not saying that the environmentalists might not have an issue here, but... I'm just saying from the so-called Global South's perspective to have Europe, who's clamoring for energy, you know, trying to lecture to Uganda about what it should be doing with its energy when, I mean, a significant part of the African population still doesn't have electricity. And and I mean, someone on Bloomberg put it beautifully. I just watched it this morning. I can't remember who it was. The anchor was asking. She said you know, shouldn't the governments around the world or Western governments start to put this environment thing just temporarily aside while we deal with this energy crisis? And the answer was pretty, you know, sophisticated in the sense they he said, we shouldn't put it aside, but we have to remember that, you know, natural gas basically helps make fertilizer and fertilizer turns into food. So the message needs to get out there that, you know, net gas is food. Okay? So when we cut off net gas, we're cutting off food. And then did you see the story on India stopping rice exports? And they supply a huge amount of rice exports all around the world. So I think the anchor had a point, the Bloomberg anchor saying, you know, maybe we should just kind of, you know, instead of stepping on the gas and trying to stomp out every pipeline, we kind of need food, I guess is our point. And it's no laughing matter. I mean... It's kind of easy for us to, you know, lecture people here in the EU about what they should be doing with their energy pipelines as we try and get energy from Africa. I mean, the hypocrisy is unbelievable. Okay. And that doesn't mean that we don't want to do something for the environment, but surely we have to feed people too. I mean, put it this way. I mean, Uganda actually had a response here. Thomas Tayebois, deputy speaker of Uganda's parliament, condemned the EU resolution, European parliament resolution, saying, quote, it represents the highest level of neocolonialism and imperialism against the sovereignty of Uganda and Tanzania, End quote. So, I mean, they are not taking it well. And I saw in a different story, basically, the Uganda president said, if Total doesn't want it, we'll just, we'll deal with someone else. Like, if you guys don't want it, we're going to build it anyway. Now, this leads us to the politics of the matter, which I don't want to get too deep into here, and we need to get to our program. But, I mean, we have this Italian election coming up on the 25th here, September 25th. Again, something that's we're seeing a lot about the future prime minister there, Georgia Maloney. I mean, I saw a really interesting report. You know, who knows if it's true, and these polls are pretty unreliable, that more than 50% of the Italian people are against the sanctions. And now we're getting basically a quote-unquote far-right government coming up, a coalition coming up in Italy. So you can start to put the two and two together here. One of the interesting things about this whole dynamic is how few elections have occurred since this war began back on February 24th. This is one of the first big elections to take place. So it's no small matter. If you ask me, I think the next big thing is probably the November congressional elections. Let's see what happens there. Again, it's this cost of living crisis is global. Okay, Inflation you know, is a real thing and it's being exported all around the world with the U.S. dollar. It's getting pretty serious. I mean, we're in the fall. So anyways, I could go on and on. But uh, no shortage of drama out here. We got some great news stories coming up too. Before we move on, though, quick reminder. Next week, we have the Global Mining Symposium, September 28th and 29th. Just go to events.northernminer.com. You can sign up for free. Just click on register your interest. And it is a rock'em, Sockham mining conference. It's too many speakers to mention. But, I mean, I mean, you just look at the speakers – and, I mean, Stephen Roman, James Moorhead, Belinda Labat, Nicholas Kakos, Harry Barr, Christian Goulet, George Hemingway is back, Dr. Or- Aaron Bobicki, Theo Yamiogo, Canada's mining and metal sector leader at EY Canada. And we haven't even talked about the headliner, Douglas Silver, mineral economist, keynote speaker and author. And Chris Taylor, formerly of Great Bear Resources, now advisor to Discovery Group. So, I'd say a must see mining event virtually. You can just put it on your computer at home. So it doesn't get any easier than that. And you can even send in your questions. So just go to events.northernminer.com to sign up today. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. Find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, Let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Lula campaign wills new mining royalties in Brazil. Spooking industry. This is Reuters via mining.com. So more concerns in Latin America. And turning to the story, Brazilian presidential frontrunner Louis Encancho Lula da Silva is considering raising royalties on certain mining projects if elected, a campaign advisor told Reuters likely affecting iron ore giant Valet, SA, and other multinationals. Under the proposal, drafted by mining specialists working for Lula's Workers' Party, the government would charge an increased royalty rate, known as a special stake, on minerals of particularly high value, whether due to geological characteristics or market demand, according to a party geologist and documents seen by Reuters. So, back to that term, resource nationalism. The idea, which has not yet been officially adopted by the Lula campaign, was described to Reuters by Claudio Scliar, a geologist and member of the PT committee in charge of mineral and energy-related matters. It was unclear how Lula would make a decision on the proposal and whether he would accept it. Well, this all sounds very preliminary, doesn't it? But it sounds like something might be in the pipeline. Brazil's Congress discussed such a royalty plan during the 2011-2016 to 2016 government of leftist President Dilma Rousseff, but it received strong pushback from the industry and was shelved. The proposal underlines one of the main ideological fault lines of Brazil's presidential campaign. And right now, scrolling down a bit, Lula holds a double-digit lead in most polls, but the gap has narrowed as both candidates gear up for the first round vote on October 2nd. And turning to our next story, Peru communities lift blockade disrupting Key Copper Transport Road, also from Reuters via Mining.com. A group of indigenous Peruvian communities that have been blocking a key copper corridor agreed to a truce on Sunday after the country's prime minister said he would meet with them. Wow, so the prime minister got involved. And let's look at where this is. Peru is the world's number two copper producer. The blockade, which lasted less than a week, affected operations by Glencore's Antipaque, MMG Limited's Las Bambas, and Hudbay Minerals' Constancia. Wow, so... Sounds like they hit the main artery there, where everything goes in and out. Protesters are asking the state to carry out a formal consultation process on whether Antipaque should be allowed to build a new copper project nearby known as Kuroko-Waiko. A meeting with Prime Minister Annabelle Torres has been set for Tuesday, according to minutes of a meeting held earlier on Sunday between protesters, mine representatives, and the government. So, interesting. Government's getting involved very quickly there. This was quite a tragic story here. Travali CEO resigns after two managers convicted of involuntary manslaughter. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi. Travali mining president and chief executive Rikis Grimbeek has left the company following a Burkina Faso's court verdict that found two employees guilty of involuntary manslaughter. You know, to editorialize, it's possible he is just trying to get out of the country, if he is in the country right now. Because he might think he's next. I mean, who knows? Let's take a look closer here. But The convictions are related to a tragic accident at the Canadian company's percoa zinc mine in the West African nation caused by a flash flood in April, which trapped and killed eight miners. South African Hain Frey was fined $3,000 and given a suspended 24-month prison sentence. Australian Daryl Christensen, who worked for contracting company Burncut was handed a 12-month suspended sentence and fined $1,500. In addition to Grimbeek, who is former head of Valais Sudbury Operations, Trevally's chief operating officer, Derek Dupreez, and director Dan Issaro also resigned, the company said in a news release late on September 16th. I'm curious if they were in the country and if they are out of the country now. I mean, they're probably worried. They're probably just trying to get out of there without, you know, being taken away. I'm just speculating, of course. The struggling miner has also begun a court-approved sales process for its interest in the 90% owned Rosh Pina's zinc-lead silver mine in Namibia and its fully-owned caribou mine in New Brunswick. And just a little details on the tragedy. Flash floods caused by unseasonal heavy rainfall caused flash floods on April 16th that left eight workers missing underground at the Perkoa mine. Valley spent the next two months pumping out about 137 million liters of water. Equipment had to be imported from other countries, including Ghana and South Africa, raising questions about the company's preparedness for disasters. Earlier this month, the Vancouver-based company announced it was delisting from the Toronto Stock Exchange, effective Monday, October 3rd after close. The decision came after the company filed an application for creditor protection under Canada's Companies Creditor Arrangement Act, CCAA. So Trevally Mining has been taken out by this tragedy here. Turning over to the U.S., Anglo Gold to buy Kerr Minings projects in Nevada for $150 million U.S., also by Cecilia Jamasmi. South Africa's Anglo Gold Ashanti is expanding its footprint in Nevada with the acquisition of Kerr Mining subsidiary for $150 million in cash. The unit, Crown Sterling, holds properties in Nevada immediately south of Anglo Gold's assets, and they are estimated to hold 914,000 ounces of gold. The bullion producer has agreed to pay Kerr an extra $50 million if further exploration results in a mineral resource greater than 3.5 million ounces. So basically, they're expanding their foothold, it says here, their footprint in the Beattie District in South Central Nevada, where Anglo Gold also bought all projects held by Corvus Gold with the recent $370 million acquisition of the Canadian Junior. So they are consolidating the property there. By buying those people around him, and we have a quote from Anglo Gold Ashanti Chief Executive Officer Alberto Calderon. The addition of these properties consolidates our ownership position in one of North America's most promising new gold districts. Kerr Mining CEO Mitchell J. Krebs noted in a separate statement that Anglo Gold had consolidated a significant portion of the Beattie District becoming, quote, the logical operator of a future standalone mining operation, end quote, in the area. The transaction is expected to be completed by the end of 2022. Turning to our next story, Glencore eyes adding lithium to its trading business. Also by Cecilia Jamasmi, mining and commodities giant Glencore is said to be evaluating the addition of lithium to the suite of metals it trades as the battery metal has become the driving force behind electric vehicles And concern over lack of supply continue to grow the swiss company would initially include lithium in its zinc and copper business run by jayothish george and nick popovic two unnamed sources told reuters glencore does not own lithium mines but ventured into the metal recycling business this year in february it joined forces with battery startup british volt to build a new recycling plant for lithium-ion batteries in england Less than three months later, the firm announced a $200 million investment in Canada's Licycle Holdings. Glencore has a strong foothold in other battery metals producing cobalt, nickel, and copper. As a global push towards a greener future is firing up demand for such metals, which the firm calls, quote, commodities of the future. And Fitch is saying that the copper price will regain the March peaks in 2027. You got some time to build a position there. <laughs> Joking, not financial advice. This by Frick Ells. Copper prices have been hovering either side of $3.50 a pound for the better part of two months, down 21% since the start of the year, and nowhere near record highs touched in early March. Slowing global growth and a strong dollar, which makes copper more expensive in the rest of the world, have undercut the bull case based on historically low inventories and robust longer-term demand fundamentals. A new report by Fitch Solutions cuts the research firm's 2023 price forecast for next year by double digits to $8,400 a ton, down from a previous projection of $9,580 for the year. Now, $3.50 a pound copper is $7,700 a ton. So, again, 3.50 dollars copper is $7,700 per tonne. And now a new report is saying next year's forecast is 8400 So I'm guessing that's 375 380 a pound. And that's down from $9,580 per ton. Fitch expects a small surplus on the copper market for this year, but from 2023 expects growing deficits peaking at some 9 million tons by the end of the decade as demand accelerates, quote, mainly driven by consumption related to the green transition. Pitch says, quote, a significant pipeline of new projects will bring additional copper to the market, particularly in Chile, Peru, Australia, and Canada, and also expects, quote, a number of key supply issues in Latin America to ease in the coming years. From around 2026, however, these improvements in supply will be increasingly outpaced by demand growth from the global transition to a green economy. You know, to editorialize, I, uh, good luck. Predicting three months from now, much less 2026, 2027. I guess you got a plan. Some people have to plan for this, so I guess that's why we're talking this far out. But it seems like a lot can happen between now and then. I mean, the way things are going these days. And turning to our final story, niobium pentoxide shows promise for speeding up charging of lithium-ion batteries. This by a staff writer at Mining.com. U.S.-based researchers have created niobium pentoxide, a high-performance material with a novel crystalline structure for battery electrodes. In a paper published in the journal Natural Materials, the scientist explained that the new material shows promise for speeding up the charging of lithium-ion batteries while providing excellent storage capacity. Fascinating. So the speeding up of the charging of lithium-ion batteries while providing excellent storage capacity. So, sounds like a big breakthrough potentially. The team points out that during charging, lithium ions move from the positive electrodes to the negative electrode, commonly made of graphite. At higher charging speeds, lithium metal tends to accumulate on the graphite surface. This effect, known as plating, tends to degrade performance and can cause batteries to short circuit, overheat, and catch fire. Niobium pentoxide, however, is much less susceptible to plating, potentially making it safer and more durable than graphite. In addition, its atoms can arrange in many different stable configurations that don't require much energy to reconfigure. So pretty interesting science going on. So just gives you the sense that the longer we try and make things work, the closer we are to just wielding power over these forces of nature, which is pretty impressive. Now let's turn to metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. Before we jump into the metals, let's look at U.S. Treasuries. There was a lot of action there. Holy 3.561%. I mean, surely this has got to be a red alert somewhere. Okay, bond yields are going higher. So just for context, now let's take a look at our metal prices. That bond price was courtesy of CNBC. And we go to metal prices courtesy of mining.com. And on September 20th, gold is trading at $1,674.86 per ounce. That is $52 lower than last week. So a big drop there. Silver is at $19.46 per ounce. That is $0.34 cents lower than last week. Platinum is $18 higher at $929.61 per ounce. And palladium is $5 higher at $2,207.36 per ounce. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is down $0.09 at $3.53 per pound. Aluminum is a penny lower at $1.02 per pound. Lead is $0.02 lower at $0.85 per pound. And nickel is $0.59 higher at $10.66 per pound. Tin is $0.05 lower at $9.61 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $23.26 per pound. And zinc is down $0.04 cents at a $1.42 per pound. So, taking a step back, looks like gold and silver take it on the chin, particularly gold. I mean, breaking that $1,700 handle. We haven't seen that for quite some time on our weekly. I'm not sure. We haven't seen that for like... I want to say three years so not great numbers in the gold market the bulls kind of remain steadfast i mean we're seeing like two and a half years on the weekly that we track here so that is quite something and silver not as bad so it's almost like industrial applications are going a little bit better And even look, platinum and palladium are the standouts for the week, really, both higher. And industrial metals basically edge lower other than nickel, which kind of pops its head up a little bit. Pretty interesting. I mean, Rohan Reddy had a lot of reservations about gold, uh, but more excited about silver and copper. So I'll just leave you with that. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Global X head of research Rohan Reddy back on the program and Rohan gives us his big picture view on macro where he sees the markets which he says are late cycle and also his views on energy industrial metals and precious metals everything we love here so without any further ado here is Rohan Reddy and I will see you on the other side. Today, I am very pleased to welcome back Rohan Reddy, Director of Research at Global X ETFs. Rohan, welcome back to the Northern Miner podcast. Great to be back, Adrian. Well, it's wonderful to have you. You've been on a few times and you've given some pretty prescient information, particularly on uranium and as well as the markets in general. So I thought maybe we could just do a little tour of how you are seeing the world right now. And start with a little bit of macro. I guess from where you are, I think you're in New York. How do you see things right now? I mean, it's pretty, it's a pretty interesting time. You
1: could say that. Uh, 2022 has been a very interesting year compared to prior years, and I think you know a lot of it goes back to the Fed, the macro story, central banks starting to tighten up. I think the big change in the equation for not just the commodity markets but overall markets as a whole has been interest rates have been rising. Fairly rapidly, and expectations for rate hikes have been moving up too, just because inflation has been very sticky and it's been very high for a long period of time. And the latest inflation print in the US and also the UK and other countries, it's been quite elevated. And I think the question is, when does it start to come down? Because that'll dictate how central banks start to react. But it looks like they're taking a little bit more of a proactive approach and being more hawkish than they were before. But what that's done is, and in relation to the commodity markets, the dollar is very strong at multi-decade highs right now. And it's not really showing too many signs of selling off from here. So until we start to see moves in the dollar uh, downward, I think that's going to add a little bit of pressure into the markets. At the same time, again, it is a multi-decade high. So how much stronger can the dollar get? We think this is more of like a shorter to medium term type of issue. But in terms of overall markets and you know the way we see things in the economic cycle, we do think that it is like somewhat late cycle right now. I think there's not really a whole lot of arguments against that, but we don't foresee any kind of recession or anything like that just because overall fundamentals are very strong. A lot of the challenges right now are more labor markets and supply chain issues. I think the, the thing that's changed has been that central banks have been more hawkish, right? So what does that do to the economy? We don't necessarily think that it's going to add a massive amount of pressure right now just because you know, these uh, central banks, what they've been doing is they've been a lot more patient than they have been in the past. But I think also they recognize that they need to balance growth agendas with reigning in inflation. So we don't think there's going to be any kind of like a major tail event that happens because of these central bank actions. So you know, our view is there is probably another 18 to 24 months of runway in this uh, economic cycle.
0: Very interesting. So if I understand you right, you're not expecting some sort of uh, crash, let's say, because a lot of people, you know, you get on your YouTube and people are predicting a major dysfunction, let's say, in the plumbing of the financial system at some point with this raising of rates and who knows what that's doing to the system. So do I have that right
1: Yeah, and I think the question we often get is, why do you think that's the case? And the reason is, well, earnings have been positive, right? They've been holding up. I mean, they're not 20 plus percent that they were on like the S&P 500 uh, like 18 months ago, but they're still positive and in the green. And for the most part, that generally is a good sign. What has changed, though, is because interest rates are going up, that's basically putting a lot more pressure on these unprofitable names, like some of those names that need a lot more central bank financing to be a little bit more accommodative for that. So, you know, if you are like a tech company or something like that, that isn't in the green uh, in your business model, I think those are the companies that have struggled the most, the ones that have been trading at high multiples. So it's really been more of a multiple contraction driven decline as opposed to a fundamentals decline. And I think what that means for the commodity markets, which is I think an interesting part of this whole equation is, Most of these names, they've been benefiting because even though they are fairly central bank uh, reliant and financing reliant, they've been benefiting from the fact that the underlying prices of the commodities have been going up uh, just because inflation's high. So the narrative in a textbook works out pretty well right now for commodities. Uh, It's typically in the past. These have been very good moments for commodity markets. And we think that's going to be the case going forward, too.
0: Very interesting. So, you are not phased, I mean, by this oil price. Last I looked here, it looked like it was in, in the neighborhood of 80 to $85. So, you're not phased by oil. Do you think, uh, w- what do you see with the energy markets? I mean, you do a fair amount of research, from what I understand, on the oil markets. Uh, what are you seeing with oil?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. We get asked this a lot just because oil has been so volatile in 2022. And what we are seeing, if we kind of boil it all down, is oil has a pretty high floor, but the upside could be fairly high too. And the reason for all this is because at the end of the day, a lot of commodity markets, including oil, are based on supply and demand, right? So demand hasn't really been you know, shocked. And the reason being, because we spoke about the economy as a whole globally, generally holding up right now, China has been the real driver on the demand side, along with, I would say, the strong dollar factoring in recently. But What's really holding up this market and ballasting it is that there has not been uh, way more supply moving into the market. And I think that's been like the big change in the last probably like seven, eight years with OPEC policy, just because Mm -hmm. in the past they would have really jumped on this moment at triple digit oil prices or like above $80 oil prices and said, well, we're making a really good margin on it. Why don't we just pump the market with more supply? and there's a few reasons why i mean some of them have been communicated publicly and some of them are a little bit more just theorizing i think on the public side i think the russia oil markets uh, impact has been you know a little bit of uh, a wild card factor to enter the year and what that means uh, russian you know oil supply is somewhere around 10% of the global market so it has had a little bit of an impact i mean they have been selling their oil at a discount to some countries like india for example but it's still like a big part of the market that's basically been, I would say, taken offline to an extent. So that's, I think, one part of it. The second is COVID, as we all know, in our daily lives has been fairly like stop and start. And so you could have demand destruction happen basically uh, within the blink of an eye. Uh, And we've seen that happen in China over and over again, which is the second largest economy in the world. And I think what this all means is that a lot of opec producers have been thinking let's let's maybe pump the brakes on some of our past plans and let's be a little bit more stable about it and so that's why these production growth numbers have not been as strong the second is also geopolitical issues so we spoke about you know russia and ukraine but there's also something along the lines of i would say just lack of like political stability in some of these smaller opec producing countries which we don't need to go into every single one but they basically have been affecting operations to an extent and then I think, lastly, the other thing is on the U.S. shale producer side, which is I think the one area that the market was a little bit more concerned about. Basically, the impact of the last seven, eight years has been investors saying we don't want you to grow production uh, aggressively because we've seen this story before. We'd much rather have uh, capital returned back to shareholders through buybacks or dividend payments, and that's been what a lot of the policy has been. So. I do think eventually push is going to come to shove at some point if prices remain, you know, above $80 for an extended period of time, eventually investors are going to sort of turn their preferences and say, well, we kind of like also profit right now and so they would probably, you know, dictate that uh production growth should increase from there, but for now it hasn't been the case. So for all those reasons, we envision that oil is unlikely to fall to say like 50 or $55 levels and is much more likely to at least hold pat with also a likelihood for some upside from here if demand starts to go up. So, it's a fairly attractive value proposition. The energy sector in the S&P 500 for example is by far the best performing one year to date and the only one in the green, I think. So, we don't think that's going to change and that it's a good place to almost I would say stay Uh, a little bit uh, pat within the market, because even though there has been volatility and equities have been moving up and down along with oil prices, they've generally recovered. And we think more of that's going to play out.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you hear about energy stocks or just energy in general as almost replacing treasuries in the portfolio as a kind of hedge of sorts, which is kind of interesting. I have a question for you on supply, because sometimes you hear this sort of this idea that, maybe Saudi Arabia really remembered like uh, when the French president came out to Biden and said, well, you know what, the Saudis are saying they can't pump anymore. And then you also hear about U.S. shale is maybe being a little bit more tapped out. And maybe the U.S. can't bail out Europe, this sort of idea with energy. Uh, do you have any thoughts on any of like the supply constraints?
1: Yeah. in the In the past, even before what we've seen with this latest part of the cycle, The infrastructure constraints were some of the biggest parts of the supply chain. And I think that's part of the reason why production had not grown as aggressively because it does take a bit of a lead time to get pipelines in the ground and also just the refining capacity and all of that. That is certainly the case and what's going on in Saudi Arabia and other countries. If you look at their capacity levels, they're operating at close to maximum levels of capacity. And until that really gets resolved, we don't really see OPEC production massively growing beyond here. Of course, part of this is, it goes back to what we said earlier about they could, if they really wanted to, you know, invest right now, because it's not, you know, a huge amount of lead time they would need to ultimately get the production to market. But between the lack of desire and also the existing supply constraints, that's part of why we don't think there's going to be a huge amount of OPEC production. On the U.S. side, There's a little bit more room to run here because even though there are similar pipeline capacity constraints, I mean, just using some numbers. So, at the peak levels before COVID, um, the US was producing about 13 million barrels of oil a day. Right now, it's less than that. So, they still ultimately have some room to run in order to increase production, even with existing uh, infrastructure in place. But I do think there's something to what you said absolutely that production can't really increase. Dramatically from here, just based on the existing infrastructure in place.
0: Fascinating. Okay. So then, if we turn to net gas quickly before we go to metals. So, we've seen, of course, in Europe, a massive raising of the price of net gas. And we've also seen a fair amount in the US. I mean, obviously not to the same extent, but still at $7.57 on what CNBC is telling me here. Uh, What's your outlook on net gas? Yes.
1: Natural gas, unlike oil and its counterpart there, uh, can be a little bit seasonal. But at the same time, what has changed is, I think obviously the war in uh, Ukraine has really changed the dynamics in Europe especially, because about 40% of all of the EU's natural gas imports come from uh, Russia. So that was a massive change in the equation for Europe uh, in terms of their energy security and where they get it from. Um, I do think in Europe, this is going to be at least a medium term issue, even with Nord Stream pipeline moving on and off and any kind of policy changes that come with that. There really isn't a whole lot of solutions right now. I mean, maybe you could, we'll we'll speak about uranium, I'm sure, later in the podcast, but that's one option for nuclear power. Uh, Renewables is another, but at the same time, this is going to take A little bit more time than it would otherwise, just because the existing infrastructure is not in place. Maybe you could blame this on poor planning a little bit, which I would agree with, um, just because there was a heavy reliance on Russian natural gas. But what this means for natural gas markets in Europe, I think it's going to be fairly heightened for a long period of time. What's going to have to give at some point is ultimately how much money are governments in Europe going to be willing to support? subsidies and things like that because it's going to start to get expensive pretty soon and then secondarily is there going to be politics in play with maybe how citizens start to vote based on what they see as their utility bills because utility bills have already been skyrocketing so our view i think is that this is somewhat of a medium-term issue but it could also become a long-term issue if the solution isn't found in place but i think what we've seen is You know, one other option could be that, you know, you look for other sources of energy, like you look towards U.S. oil and gas and building the infrastructure in place there. But it's going to take a couple of years to get that to market. Liquefied natural gas is another solution. But I think that's the dynamic in Europe right now is it's a little bit challenging and prices are probably going to be elevated there for a long period of time, even withstanding any kind of developments with Russia and just sort of what the politics play out there with negotiations. The second point on the U.S., I still think it's going to be elevated in the U.S. too, just because even though natural gas production has been increasing in the U.S., it isn't going to increase tremendously from here, Uh, just because based on what you see with the forecast and also company guidance, I think you're going to start to see a flattening of growth in the next 6 to 12 months or so. And even though that does mean there is going to be growth, it isn't going to be as dramatic as it would be to tame back $7.50 natural gas, right? So can these prices last for an extended period of time in the U.S.? I think it's unlikely, but at the same time, they're going to be elevated beyond that what we saw of like $2, $2.50 natural gas levels, because right now there's not a whole lot of options to get the supply. So you're really relying on domestic producers or some existing partnerships that you had, which we spoke about supply constraints and uh, the oil markets, there are similar dynamics in some countries with natural gas too. So I don't think the issue is going to be as exacerbated in the U.S., but it's going to be an issue that people are going to have to contend with. And we are already starting to see, you know, utility bills in the U.S. too are starting to rise. So I don't think this is limited to just Europe. This is probably going to be a global phenomenon because. Energy security right now, you know, one of the drawbacks of moving heavily into renewables is you do have to have a plan in place for how you ultimately bridge the gap. And that we're starting to see, even though, yes, it was a bit unlucky with this Russia-Ukraine war and I think supply constraints and COVID and all of those issues that happened seemingly at once in an 18-month span – these issues do need to be contended with. And if they're not planned out, this can happen. And I think, uh, you know, the ramifications are going to last for a bit.
0: So very comprehensive answer there. So speaking of uranium, then that's where I want to go next. So where are we with this? I mean, we saw a couple of nuclear power plants in Germany. They weren't committing to keeping them open, but they're committing to keep the option. Basically, they committed to not close them. But not to necessarily keep them open um but you know so where are we with nuclear and uranium from your perspective
1: yep it's a great question i would say there's probably no commodity coming up more these days in conversations than uranium for a lot of the reasons you discussed i think there's a few levers that can be pulled you know first one is building new nuclear power plants i think that's been a little bit less of the case in europe But we have seen that in asia for example that's been a massive growth driver just for big population centers like that the second is you know you can change policy to be a little bit more accommodative so essentially not being negative towards nuclear that's i think what some countries like the united states have opted to do then you have the third option which is what europe is looking to do which is essentially a middle ground of not really saying we're super pro-nuclear, but also not saying we're totally against it. And that's where these like stopping the phase outs of nuclear power have come into play. So I think Europe is taking more of a middle ground approach. Again, some of it is probably to save face on the politics a little bit and also the energy security mm-hmm. issue we discussed with natural gas. But nuclear has a pretty bright future, I think, not just in even Europe where you'll probably start to see phase outs be at least stemmed Maybe there's some countries that are really going to dig their feet into the ground, like Germany, for example, and say, ah, we're going to plow ahead with it, but maybe in like a year from now. But I think you'll also start to see some countries really look back at these issues with Russia and the Ukraine war and say, you know, nuclear power for all the like sentiment that was against it in previous years, we still think there's a really good future for it because, again, very reliable, doesn't have greenhouse gas emissions. And as long as we solve the waste aspect, it really does kind of hit a lot of the numbers that we were looking for. And that goes back to why it was included in the EU taxonomy, right? So the attitude is starting to change a little bit. But the part of the market that I think we're the most sort of like optimistic about, I would say, is in uh, the Asian markets, just because countries like China and India have been very pro-nuclear. and even though developed markets can you know really swing things and sentiment is a big part of that, uh, as we saw with Japan, for example, with the news about that and restarting nuclear power plants, the more electricity that's used, that is more positive for uranium, right? And so as we start to see more countries that use more power adopt uranium, that's where I think you could start to see a lot more of the kind of pull forward in demand. And Adrian, as we've spoken before in prior podcasts, I mean, when you're coming off of like 20, $25 a pound levels in the last like three, four years, really the upside looks pretty good. So it's almost like, I would say, if you look at it and you analyze it, it feels like an asymmetric return stream. So we're seeing a lot of both sophisticated clients and also even those down to the mom and pop retail level, look at uranium a lot more. And we've seen it, we run a fund, uh, ticker URA, the inflows have been amongst one of our best funds here to date.
0: Fascinating. And before we move on from uranium, how do you see the supply? I mean, is there enough uranium just based on what's opening now? Like, you know, like without any projections forward of new nuclear reactors, is there enough uranium to supply all these reactors?
1: Yeah, it's it's a very good question, because especially when you look at recontracting, I think that's the major issue is, you know, when you look at utilities that have already done this, they're going to look to other sources and say, "Well, how can we kind of get the uranium that we need in a cost-effective manner?" And so, there really is not enough supply right now. If you look at supply-demand uh, projections, we're expected to be in a deficit for at least the next five to seven years. If you look at you know growth projections based off of nuclear reactors and power plants coming to market. Part of this, again, has probably been exacerbated by the Russia-Ukraine war and the supply chain issues that came with that and just Russia's role in enrichment and just their role there. But at the same time, even primary market supply, you're going to need a lot more uranium to actually come to market. And so there are some countries with geopolitical issues like Kazakhstan, Russia, you know, that, maybe they're not going to be able to fill the void. And so it opens up a huge opportunity set for producers in countries like Australia and Canada, I think are the most notable ones. But yes, to answer your question, there is going to be an extended period of a deficit. And that's part of the reason why uh, prices have been moving up above this $50 a pound level.
0: Okay. So before you go, I do want to touch on industrial and precious metals. So what are you seeing on the copper market here? Let me just... Bring it up. I see on, say, CNBC. I see three dollar and forty eight cent copper. So kind of, you know, closer to its lows. Uh, I guess. Do you see it following the equity markets, or what's your outlook on copper?
1: Yes, copper. Even though it sometimes seems a bit complicated, and of course, uh, markets are always a bit of a projection. A lot of times, there's a, there's an old saying: "As China goes, so does copper." And that's what we've been seeing a lot of in the beginning part of 2022 and into the later parts of 2022 now, where when there have been these lockdowns that have happened and lockdowns that get lifted and positive and negative news start to swing out of China, a lot of times the copper markets follow suit. That's why it's been so volatile, because it's been very difficult to project. At the same time, also, about 40% of global copper supply comes from two countries, uh, Peru and Chile. And so... You know, those countries have been a little bit volatile too, just because of the politics around there and the nationalist rhetoric and countries like Chile and what that means for copper supply. So I think this has been a fairly difficult market on the supply side to project. But uh, what we've seen with China is that they've been driving a lot of the market. So strong dollar. We obviously have seen factory numbers move up and down with uh, COVID reopenings. But even outside of the China story, I think what's been you know keeping the market a little bit more at bay uh, and stemming the drawdown has been that there's been some really positive news on the electric vehicle front. So to give a stat, um, uh, an electric vehicle uses about four times as much copper as a traditional like conventional vehicle that's fossil fuel powered. So as we've seen a lot more uh, sales of electric vehicles and more accommodated policies with subsidies, That's actually been helping to kind of balance the copper markets but at the same time i do think this is going to be a volatile market but given the you know what we saw right around three dollars and fifty cents on copper right now and then it was above 450 just a few months back there could be a big snapback rally here if we start to see the economy function at a normal level and supply chain issues subside and china resume kind of normal economic standing so I would say it is a little bit more of a volatile market right now, but it always has been. Um, And I would say if you do have that buy the dip mentality, we have seen some investors start to look to this market for that reason.
0: Interesting. So, yeah, it it seems to me like a lot of these commodities like energy commodities in general, even the risk is to the upside in a sense, at least if you take a bit more of a midterm to long term. View on things. And just quickly, if possible, you spoke of EVs. Uh, you know, what about, and I don't want to put too much in one thing here, but what about nickel and lithium? Uh, and you can take them separately if you want, or just general thoughts on both if you like.
1: Yeah, lithium has been, I think, you know, when you think about high growth investments this year, most investments have generally underperformed, particularly on the equity side. But lithium has been one of the few bright spots just because. We spoke about the electric vehicle story, but really there is a lack of supply right now. And so prices have been moving up considerably. Prices have been changing a little bit, but even in the 12 month period, just a few years back, year over year, prices were up like 12x compared to what they were in the COVID period. So, you know, what we mm-hmm. have been seeing is there's basically a huge lack of supply in the lithium market because. You know, if you look at electric vehicles, what they need for lithium growth projections and subsidies in place from government and incentivizing sales there, there have been countries like China that have been selling electric vehicles very well. And then there's others like Norway, for example, where, you know, if you start to look at percentage of vehicle sales, EVs are pretty high up there. And so we do think that it's a pretty good spot in the market to stay invested for a very long period of time. And it's also been holding up much better than other you know, higher growth investments. So it's falling within that whole commodity complex right now of generally a good story, lack of supply, and also inflation is helping it out. So we, of course, the big story is going to be about electric vehicles and the way those trend. But at the same time, it's also benefiting from a lot of the macro narrative too. So the drawdown has not been you know, as steep this year. And that's why we've also seen kind of interest within lithium remain relatively strong nickel again uh, i would say what has been changing a little bit has been there's been some companies looking at different ways of exploring battery technology so usually nickel is like a big input into some of these lithium-ion batteries again is there going to be another solution beyond nickel probably not for the near term i mean there's been some other metals like manganese and others that have been explored but again the technology takes a little bit of time it is somewhat challenging and we do think that, there, again, like from like a strategic metals point of view, lithium and nickel supply countries are going to want to rush to kind of secure supplies here. And you've already seen even big investors like Elon Musk say there's like a lack of supply in some of these markets. So we think that there's going to be ultimately a deficit driven story, at least in the short term. And then in the long term, of course, with the EVs, more of a demand driven story.
0: It's borne out by many stories. I think a couple of weeks ago, I I went over four different stories where four different automakers were making deals with lithium and nickel miners uh, just to, uh, as you say, to secure supply. I mean, so we are definitely in a different environment from, you know, seven years ago or so. So just to wrap up on precious metals, how are you seeing gold and silver?
1: Yeah, I think gold and silver Probably the one that I, I would say has been the most challenging has been gold, just because the gold story has been changing a lot. Usually, you know, we've spoken about uh, a number of different commodities uh, in the last you know half hour or so. But gold, I think the story around gold has just been somewhat challenging because the other ones have a very strong narrative in place, and it's been working. I think that's also why more investors have been moving into it. Gold, you know, is the safe haven metal, and the fact that it's a little bit less sensitive to, you know, what we've been seeing with market volatility. But at the same time, that narrative hasn't really played out, right? And so there's just been, I think, a lack of investors moving into this space. And even if you look at technical uh, inventory numbers and just open interest, we haven't been seeing as much, you know, movement on that front. So, does it have a strategic place in the portfolio? Absolutely, just because you know it is somewhat of a diversifier compared to other markets at least in the long term but what we've been seeing in the short term has been there certainly has been like a risk on correlation and i think until that changes that's where you're going to start to see you know more of these drawdowns occur i wouldn't put the two in in a similar vein by any means but bitcoin has been having this a similar issue too where it's been trading almost like a risk on asset even though it's supposed to be somewhat decorrelated so over the long term, uh, those things could certainly change. But right now, I think given that there's, you know, gold is used less so in some of those major like industrial types of applications compared to other things like copper, uranium, even silver, which we'll talk about now. But I think right now that's been somewhat of the issue, along with the strong dollar. The strong dollar has been dampening mm-hmm. demand, too. So I would say within all the commodities, gold is probably the one we're a little bit less bullish on. But silver, I think what's been interesting about silver is certainly it has had a bit of a drawdown, but a large reason for that has been because a lot of the demand side has been challenged with you know, China and the lack of factory uh, data being positive. So yes, it could be a little bit more volatile in silver. However, for a short-term investor, we do think this is a good opportunity to capture maybe a buy-the-dip mentality because- Silver has sold off considerably, right? And so, if you do start to see an economic reopening and stronger data come out, that could be we've seen all of these in silver happen before those big snapback rallies. So, not to say that that's going to happen, but the dynamics are setting up where maybe silver has been oversold now.
0: Fascinating. So, do you have any closing thoughts? It sounds like if I was to summarize, you know, commodities, I mean, to maybe overgeneralize, it's kind of a buy the dip kind of mentality that you have. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think there's some where there's certainly the cyclical ones. We have a buy the dip mentality on like copper, uh, silver, those two, I think right now, even though they're a little bit more old school metals, they've sold off quite dramatically, even with an inflationary environment, largely because of China. But I think also there's just, you know, a risk off attitude right now. The ones that we think are less cyclical, which we're the most bullish on uh, over the long term, are things like lithium and uranium, those that are clearly involved in like the clean energy movement and have almost like a major structural tailwind behind them. So our view is like long term uranium and lithium are some of our top picks. And then by the dip mentality in the short term, copper and silver.
0: Fantastic, Rowan Reddy, director of research for Global X ETFs, Thank you for once again joining us and sharing your wisdom with us on the Northern Miner Podcast.
1: Thanks a lot, Adrian.
0: And there we have it, another episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Next week, the Global Mining Symposium. Q3 edition, September 28th, 29th. Just go to events.northernminer.com to register your interest for free. And other than that, we have an awesome lineup coming up in coming episodes. So we look forward to joining you then. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Directory. Share it with your friends. Until next week, take care.